ECO Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Good morning and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm David Lyman. President Trump has eliminated a rule that enabled the government to criminally prosecute businesses for accidentally injuring and killing migratory birds. Some 100 years ago, Congress passed the Migratory Bird Treaty Act to cut the mass killing of birds. Commercial overhunting was then the primary cause of bird deaths. Under the Obama administration, the act was used to ensure that energy infrastructure, including wind farms, oil fields, and power lines would not be harmful to birds. Accidental injuring or killing of birds used to be punishable by up to six months in jail and $15,000 per bird. In reversing this act, the Trump Interior Department recently issued a legal option arguing that the understanding the act to include accidental injuring or killing of migratory birds is against the original intent of the act. The Trump administration claims the act applies only to hunting and purposeful injury and death. How feasible is it to convert completely to renewable electricity? A new study says it is not only technically possible, but would bring cheaper prices. Research by Finland's Lapinrata, Lapinranta University and the Berlin-based nonprofit Energy Watch Group was presented in late December at a conference in Bonn, Germany. The authors say that existing renewable energy potential and technologies coupled with improved storage capacity can generate enough energy to meet the global electricity demand by 2050. Christian Breyer, lead author of the study, says, quote, energy transition is no longer a question of technical feasibility or economic viability, but of political will, end quote. According to the study, solar power and battery storage are critical parts of the transition. Falling prices of components will lead to widespread adoption of the technologies. The researchers predict that the globe's electricity mix by 2050 will consist of solar photovoltaics, 69%, wind energy, 18%, hydropower, 8%, and bioenergy, 2%. By following this path, greenhouse gas emissions in the electricity sector will drop to nearly zero. Not only that, the renewable energy transition would create 36 million jobs by 2050, 17 million more than today. According to the Earth Policy Institute, the world uses almost 2 million single-use plastic bags a minute. Many of those bags ultimately clog the ocean. <laughs> California is the only state to have done something about this problem, and the initiative is paying off. Just over a year ago, California voters upheld a ban on single-use plastic bags passed by the legislature in 2014. 
This past September, findings showed that as compared to 2010, plastic bag litter has fallen about 72%. Plastic bags now constitute less than 1.5% of all litter instead of 10% in 2010. In Monterey County, south of San Francisco, volunteer cleanup crews recently found only 43 plastic bags as compared to just under 2,500 during a beach cleanup in 2010. That year, plastic bags were third behind cigarette butts and fast food packaging as the most discarded items. Today, they're no longer among the top 10 most littered items. That's some good news. Several areas of wilderness have been targeted for exploitation during the first year of the Trump administration. EcoReport has already done stories on Bears Ears and the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Today, we bring you stories that have not gotten national attention. One of those is our first national park, Yellowstone. There are proposals to open two gold mines in Paradise Valley, just outside the park near Livingston, Montana. These would be open pit mines and the runoff could kill the Yellowstone River. Montanians are not happy with this and Democratic Senator John Tester has proposed the Yellowstone Gateway Protection Act, which would protect 30,000 acres of public land on the doorstep to Yellowstone from large-scale gold mining. Republican Senator Steve Daines, the junior senator from Montana, has proposed the Protect Public Use of Public Lands Act currently before Congress. This blanket piece of legislation involves the removal of protections from nearly a half a million acres of wilderness study across Montana. The bill submitted to Congress shuts out virtually all public input. The aim of the bill is to make these areas open to mountain biking, motorcycling, snowmobiling, and ATVing. Another area under threat of exploitation is the Grand Canyon. There has been uranium mining off and on within or near the park since the 1970s. One problem is the runoff is highly contaminated. Now, a coalition of influential officials in Arizona and Utah is urging the Trump administration to consider rolling back Obama-era environmental protections that ban new uranium mining near or within the Grand Canyon. The administration argues that the 20-year ban that came into effect in 2012 is unlawful and stifles economic opportunity in the mining industry. But supporters of the ban say new mining activity could increase the risk of uranium-contaminated water flowing into the canyon. Past mining in the region has left hundreds of polluted sites among Arizona's Navajo population, leading to serious health consequences, including cancer and kidney failure. Many other national parks or wilderness areas are under threat, and EcoReport will bring those stories to you over the next weeks. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm David Lyman. We love to hear from our listeners. Contact us about stories we've aired, or if you have ideas for future stories, please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. And now it's time for Get Out and Hike, our segment showcasing the wonderful wild areas of southern Indiana and beyond. This is Get Out and Hike, and I'm Jan Walker. Hello, this is Stacy Duke. I'm the District Recreation and Wilderness Manager for the Hoosier National Forest. 
and I'm here today to talk a little bit about trail opportunities within the Hoosier National Forest, and I will be specifically talking about the Brownstown Ranger District trails, and in fact, the Hoosier National Forest is split into two separate districts, and Brownstown is the northern district. And within that district, we have approximately 90 miles of multiple-use trails. We allow for horseback riding, mountain biking, and hiking use, keeping in mind that some trails may be limited to one or two of those uses and not necessarily all three. A couple of examples of trail systems on the Brownstown Ranger District that would meet the multiple-use category for all three uses are the Hickory Ridge Trail System and the Shirley Creek Trail System. Um, Although primarily used by horseback riders, those trail systems, of course, also allow for mountain bike use and hiker use throughout. Um, The Hickory Ridge Trail System is about 47 miles, give or take, and the Shirley Creek Trail System is approximately 20 miles. Both systems have loop opportunities. You're also welcome to go in on a trail as far as you want and simply turn around and come back. Lots of opportunities for viewing wildlife and just enjoying uh, south-central Indiana woods. We also have other trail opportunities, such as the Pate Hollow Trail, which is a popular trail for primarily hiking. It is a hiker-only trail. That's something to keep in mind whenever you are going out to the Hoosier National Forest. Always ensure you're abiding by all of the rules and regulations. Back to the Pate Hollow Trail, being a hiker-only trail, it is popular because of its close proximity to Bloomington. Uh, We do see a lot of students coming down to hike that trail. It has a couple of different loop options, one of which takes you to the edge of Lake Monroe. How difficult is the Pate Hollow Trail? The trails in general, we, we tend to indicate that they are moderately difficult, and that's a little bit of a safety net for us because it really comes down to individual skill level. We certainly recommend that folks keep in mind that Even though two miles or four miles or even six miles may not sound all that long, when you're out actually in the woods on uneven terrain, going up and down hills, typically folks wear out quicker than they expect themselves to. So it's always a good thing to keep in mind your own personal uh, ability when going out in the forest. How about the Harden Ridge area? That, too, is pretty close to uh, Bloomington, and I hear a lot of people talking about it. Yes, uh, Harden Ridge Recreation Area is our largest developed recreation area within the Hoosier National Forest. We have 200 individual campsites, um, some of which are available for reservation, some of which you can come in and just walk in, and if they're available, you can utilize them. There are also a couple of trail opportunities within Harden Ridge. We have a trail called the Harden Ridge Trail, which essentially parallels the main road, but does give you some opportunities to get away from the road and into the woods. We also have an interpretive trail in that recreation area that has educational trail side signage. Um, This is a great trail for kids to go on with parents, of course, or with family and adults. It's about 1.2 miles round trip. 
However, keep in mind the last couple of tenths of a mile is very, very steep, so you have to be prepared to get your heart pumping on that trail. <laughs> um, but Hardin Ridge is located just a couple miles off of 446, so it can be accessed off of the main road of 446. Please keep in mind that trail permits are required if you are accessing our trails by horseback or by mountain bike. We do not require trail permits or any form of check-in, check-out for hikers. Um, but if you are utilizing trails on the Hoosier National Forest, you must beforehand purchase a trail permit. You can get a daily permit, which is $5, or you can purchase an annual permit, which is $35. Permits can be purchased at both of our district offices. One is located in Bedford, and the other one is in Tell City, down near the Ohio River. Um, we also have several vendors throughout the state that sell our trail permits. And you, of course, can access more information about this on our Hoosier National Forest website, which is www.fs.usda.gov backslash Hoosier. And you're also welcome to Google the Hoosier National Forest and obtain the address that way. Thank you very much for meeting with me today. Thank you very much. Today, we re-air one of our favorite features from 2017. Eco-Report correspondent Norm Holy speaks with Indiana Forest Alliance Conservation Director Ray Schnapp about the environmental impact of logging Yellowwood State Forest. This is Norm Holy from WFHB, and today I'm interviewing Dr. Ray Schnapp. She is the Conservation Director for the Indiana Forest Alliance, and the protest at the sale of Yellowwood certainly generated a lot of discussion. I was there. I wanted to see how things went. A couple of fairly disturbing events that occurred. I wonder if you have any comments about the proceedings. Well, sure. I can sort of describe the setting a little bit. So the timber sale took place at the Yellowwood State Forest office. So the auction was inside of a fenced enclosure. Uh, only licensed timber buyers were supposed to be in there behind the fence and, of course, uh, DNR employees. And then it's not live auction with an auctioneer. It's a sealed bid auction. So the timber buyers come with their bids in an envelope and present them. So it's very short. And there were about 200 people there protesting the sale, but the sale proceeded anyway. The protesters actually had a bid, even though they're not licensed timber buyers, they did submit an offer to pay $150,000 for this timber, but their offer was not really considered um, because they're not licensed timber buyers. And, and then auction proceeded, and the highest bid that they got was considerably lower than that, and they went with it. And so that was the winning bid. I think it was $108,000. The protesters were mostly asking them to stop the sale, and urging the timber buyers not to bid, it didn't work out that way. I'm really surprised the $150,000 bid did not apparently get any consideration at all. Uh, well, I guess I'm, I'm not too surprised because we knew we weren't the licensed timber buyers. Normally, as part of the contract, the timber buyer has to remove the trees. So our offering to pay $150,000 not to remove the trees 
is, you know, kind of unacceptable to them because they want those trees removed. When they go in and cut down the timber, you know, they're going to take the oaks and they're going to take the poplar and the ash and other choice varieties. What's the impact of just taking out certain species and leaving others there? What does that do to the forest? They describe it as a selective timber harvest, and it sounds like a nice idea to be able to go in there and just select certain trees and pull them out and sell that lumber in order to support the rest of the forest management. But in the real world, it doesn't work that way. There's a lot of collateral damage. I mean, the trees are rather close together in a forest, so there are trees in the way of the target trees. And so some of them will have to be cut too, and they are removing trees by road. So they have to build roads to get the logs out, and that it has a tremendous impact on the forest. The openings that are created by both the roads and the removed trees allow sunlight to reach the forest floor, and that can enable young trees to emerge and grow up, but it can also create some really big problems with invasive species, especially when the soils are compacted by heavy equipment. And sometimes the equipment itself is carrying in seeds of invasive species, moving them around, and often and those species are very adaptable and they can outcompete the desired tree species. What we have after selective harvest is a forest that is very different, basically. The road access and appearance of invasive species, a lot of woody debris left on the ground, and the different species composition, too. And I, I wanted to mention that some of the trees that they intend to harvest include elms. I heard one young person say, I've never seen a mature elm because she's young. And she says it's kind of heartbreaking that they're going to be cutting mature elms. So there, it changes the forest in, in a lot of different ways. Does the NR or the loggers, do they plant trees to replace the ones that they've taken out? Sometimes, but uh, more often they are relying on seeds from the surrounding forest to kind of repopulate that area. Seeds and seedlings, the seedlings may already be there, and they can emerge into the sunlight when an opening is created. So how many years does it take for saplings to appear in the spaces that have been logged? Is it... Well, it takes a very long time. It would take a very long time for that area to regenerate. We at the Indiana Forest Alliance have been conducting a taxonomic inventory on this area. We call it our EcoBlitz area. We were studying a 900-acre tract because it is one of the largest blocks of continuous interior forest in the state. And we hired specialists to study various taxonomic groups like trees and plants, of course, but also Insects, spiders, bats and mammals, bats and other mammals, snakes and lizards, moths, bees, lichen. And so this is literally one of the most studied forest tracks in the whole state. We had dendrochronologists in there to determine the age of the trees. We found that most of the big trees were over 100 years old. This does not mean that all the trees are more than 100 years old because an old forest is a mosaic of different age trees. This area is on its way to becoming an old-growth forest. Generally, the definition of old growth is 120 years. And so if we left this area alone, it would be an old-growth forest for the next generation. But if we log it, you know, it will take many generations before it can achieve that. Our concern, and then this is also a designated backcountry area, so it's supposed to be 
used for recreation, and it is heavily used for recreation. Um, so it will impact that recreational use a lot, too, if they move forward with this harvest. What bird or animal species are impacted negatively if you take out the ash and the poplar? When you create those openings, it does create opportunities for cowbirds. Cowbirds are uh, nest predators. They will lay their eggs in the nests of other birds out-compete the other birds. They basically get other birds to raise their young, and they prefer areas that are that where there are openings. So we'll probably see a lot more nest predation after the harvest, and that would be many different bird species. So it's a little bit hard to, to predict. I don't think, and I'm not aware of um, any species that particularly nest in ash trees. The area that they're logging is demonstrated to have bats roosting there. Are they going to do any logging next summer in that area? No, they won't be able to harvest timber after April because of the threat of Indiana bat and other endangered bat species. There's a certain season when they can harvest because of that. Um, what happens to the streams that are in the watershed where they're cutting? Are they creating a lot of silt that goes into the stream? Yes, that can be the case. Forests are great at protecting watersheds and improving water quality. So this area is mostly forested, but any time we remove forest cover from steep slopes like these, there is great potential for erosion, uh, for soil erosion to run off and get into the streams and create a problem with sediment load. And we're already experiencing a lot of siltation in Lake Monroe. The sediment is um, diminishing the capacity of the reservoir there. So, um, so that is uh, a serious concern. I'd like to thank you very much for an excellent interview. Are you an environmental activist, an expert on a particular issue of environmental concern, a concerned citizen interested in learning more about local and national environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. Give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. This is In Nature. The rough grouse is a medium-sized grouse occurring in forests from the Appalachian Mountains across Canada to Alaska. It is non-migratory. These chunky, medium-sized birds weigh from one to one and a half pounds. Rough grouse have two distinct morphs, gray and brown. There is much white on the underside and flanks. Rough grouse are found in some of the large forested areas of south central Indiana. Rough grouse depend upon young forests of seedling, sampling, pole-sized hardwoods. Grouse are native to Indiana. The first settlers found grouse throughout the state. But as the years passed, loss of habitat caused a rapid decrease in the population. By 1929, the range had dwindled to its present size in the south-central hill region. 
The population picked up again in the late 1930s as abandoned farms reverted back to brushlands. The rough grouse. Now for our weekly events calendar. The 30th annual Eagle Watch at Potoka Lake will take place on Saturday, January 6th from 10 a.m. to 4.45 p.m. Feel the wind of an eagle's wings while experiencing the world of eagles in Indiana with indoor and outdoor programs at the Potoka Lake Nature Center. Dress for the weather and don't forget to bring binoculars. Registration is required. The Little Hikers will be gathering at Bean Blossom Bottoms Nature Preserve on Sunday, January 7th from noon to 2 p.m. for a Who's Been Here hike. Good questions often lead to wonderful discoveries. The preserve is located at North Woodall Road in Ellettsville. Call the Sycamore Land Trust to register and for more information. Winter in the Woods at Brown County State Park is scheduled from Friday, January 12th through Sunday, January 14th, with events scheduled all weekend. Contact Brown County State Park for information on all the events and times. There will be a winter hike, but with a twist. Who was George Donaldson? Come to Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, January 13th to learn all about George Donaldson. Spring Mill State Park has Donaldson Cave, and Donaldson Woods. So who was he? Meet at the Donaldson Shelter parking lot and explore this unique and important character. You will have the opportunity to visit the cave and a potential foundation of his home. The Wild and Scenic Film Festival is scheduled for Sunday, January 14th from 5.30 to 8 p.m. at the Buzzkirk Chumley Theater located at 114 East Kirkwood Avenue in Bloomington. Enjoy a night of 10 short films about our tender planet and the warriors, advocates, and innovators striving to protect it while benefiting the Indiana Forest Alliance. Tickets are available at the Buzzkirk Chumley box office. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eagle Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's news stories were written by Linda Green and Norm Holy. Norm Holy produced our feature. Jan Walker produced Get Out and Hike and Cindy Bole edited the segment. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Kirsten Payton is our engineer and audio editor. Producer and script editor is Rebecca Mueller. Executive producer is Wes Martin. For Eco Report, I'm David Lyman. And I'm Juliana Daly. Join us on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. before Democracy Now! And again on Fridays at 5 p.m. before Kite Line for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. You can access headline news and feature audio from our show anytime on the WFHB website.
You've been listening to The Eco Report. A volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB. In Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org. Every week on Making Contact, you'll hear voices from the United States and around the globe speaking on issues vital to all of us. We report on economic, political, and social trends. We also look at the issues that drive popular movements globally. You can hear Making Contact on this non-commercial radio station.